I'm not really wild about the uh, long weekends like this one where it start like on Thursday or Friday. I get completely discombobulated. I'm always thinking I'm preaching tomorrow. So, uh, <laughs> and it seems like forever, you know, since I actually worked on this sermon. So may God have mercy upon us all, right? We're starting John today. And I have no idea how long this series will take us, but uh, we will enjoy it, won't we? Yeah, it's good stuff. All right, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him there was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Stop there. Let's pray. Father, open the eyes of our hearts this morning that we may indeed say, see Jesus high and lifted up, that we may see his incredible majesty and supremacy, that believing in his supremacy we might see his sufficiency, open our eyes to the hope to which we have been called in Christ, open our eyes to the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in us and for us who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask this for his glory and our good, Amen. By God's providence, you have been saved from a very probably boring introduction because Friday, as Amy and I were sitting and watching a little bit of TV while the kids rested, the doorbell rang and we peeked and we saw and we trembled. For indeed, it was the Mormons. Four Mormons. Yes, and so I went outside to do spiritual battle with four Mormons on Friday afternoon. <clears throat> and it was a providential, of course, that we're dealing, I'm dealing with the mystery of the Trinity, and particularly the, the divinity of the Son of God this morning, because they got a little bit of that. And in fact, we disagreed about that, but we, they didn't believe we disagreed about that. That was part of the problem because, oh, we believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. Do you now? Do you really? And I had a hard time kind of getting them to see that, in fact, they do not. For they find themselves more in the line of the um, condemned Arius, who many years ago, before the Council of Nicaea and after, was trying to teach that Jesus was indeed the first created being. He denied the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, but said that he was the first creature that was made, his now divine, I'm not really sure how you get from point A to point B, but that's okay. Um, it doesn't really matter. A tremendous deal. But he has many children. For the thoughts of Arius continue on today, not just in the Church of the Latter-day Saints, but also among the Jehovah's Witnesses and among others. It is not just fashionable for atheists to deny the divinity of Jesus, but it is also fashionable for many who consider themselves Christians to unthinkably deny the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. 
A big idea this morning is that Jesus is the eternal Son who came to reveal God. We're going to focus primarily on the first verse of chapter 1 here. I'll mention a little bit from the other five verses, and next week we'll get into verses 2 through 5. Don't worry, as I said last week, it will not take us a year to cover these first five verses. Okay, so have no fear. Let us begin with the reality we find the first phrase, the Word existed eternally. In many ways, John's gospel is unique because it starts with this phrase, in the beginning, at the very beginning. Matthew and Luke really kind of focus on the the birth, the the nativity scenes of Jesus. Uh, Mark just starts right with the beginning of his earthly ministry, and John just kind of goes and throws a big curveball when you're looking for the fastball. It's just not what you're expecting right here. The dispersed Jewish audience, probably within Asia Minor that he wrote to, had some expectations when they read, in the beginning, their minds would go back to Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning, God. But John here says, in the beginning was the Word. I'm sure they were surprised to read those words. Wait a minute. That would, you know, arrest them, cause them to stop, cause them to think as it should cause us to stop and to think just a little bit. We'll note, of course, that he says, in the beginning was the Word. He did not say that in the beginning the Word came into being. And so he is not speaking here about the beginning of the Word, as though somehow the first thing that God did in creation was to create the Word and then through the Word create everything else. He does not, he could have said that. He didn't say that. And the reason he didn't say that is because that's not how it happened. And so those people who fall into the, the history and the thinking of Arius really have a problem here because of the way this is written. It really rules out this idea that first the Word was made and then everything else was made. And yet that is exactly what Arius thought. That is exactly what the Mormons believe. That the very first... Well, actually they say that Jesus is the first Son of God. And so what, how they sort of explain this is that Jesus, you know, when we speak of, of the Father eternally generating the Son, we don't speak of it as if the Son was born, as if the Son, I keep forgetting, I can't move away from here, uh, as if the Son had a mother, but they speak of it in a more literal sense than we speak of it, that He was actually born. That there was a time when the Son was not, and then there was a time when the Son was. And so, in my mind, that means that the Son is not eternal in the sense of His Sonship. But, apparently, we and the Mormons disagree on that. The Jehovah's Witnesses as well think that there was a time when the sun was not and then the sun was. We see Jesus addressing this later on in the, in this gospel. In chapter eight, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
And there he invokes the divine name that we find in Exodus when Moses was before the bush that was burning but refused to burn up. And he asked, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent me. And so Jesus evokes the divine name in John chapter 8. And that is not the only place in which he does this. So what is it that John means by word? Logos in the Greek. Is he bringing something over, you know, from Greek philosophy as some people have theorized? Well, if we look at Greek philosophy, you have to kind of wonder, well, which Greek philosopher is he, been, is he depending upon? Because the ways in which all the different philosophers like Heraclitus, Epimenides, Socrates, Plato, they understood this word logos differently from one another. There was disagreement amongst them, and so first you'd have to identify, well, which one? And so it becomes much of a mess. I'm not going to give you a lesson on Greek philosophy this morning. Have no fear. It's far more profitable, I believe, to look to the Old Testament, particularly in the Septuagint, and see what is, what, where is Logos used in the Old Testament? It's a far more profitable and far more reasonable source for our data, particularly when we consider the fact that the man who wrote this, John the Apostle, was Jewish and would be rooting all of this, particularly in that, even that sentence, the, the beginning phrase, in the beginning. He's rooting all of this in the Old Testament scriptures and applying them in light of Christ. So much better to look there to understand what is meant by word. Logos is used not so much as a designation, for instance, pulpit, okay? We, we, we talk about words in that way, you know, this is the word for this thing. What, de- what, de- what designates this thing from other things is this is a pulpit, and that is a chair, and that's a guitar and a stool and a music stand. So word, it's not word used in that sense, but word used with respect to power. We find this in the Old Testament, particularly when we look at blessing and cursing. A word is spoken, and that word is meant to convey a sense of power to create or to destroy. This word is also used when it comes to the word of the Lord came to a prophet. And so it has more of this idea of this, this idea of making things, reality, take place. And so, it is used of the word of God by which he accomplishes his will. His will in creation, his will in prophecy. And so we see that the word here is an expression of God to all that is not God. God is speaking by this word, God is, in a sense, revealing himself by this word. And so Leon Morris is led to believe, on the basis of this and other things, that it is in God's nature to reveal himself. He wants to be known. He's not hiding away somewhere, playing hide-and-seek. But he comes out and he declares who he is, because that is part of who he is. One who makes himself known in creation and redemption. 
We see from Hebrews 1 that God is a speaking God. At first, He spoke in times past through dreams and through revelations, but then He declares in Hebrews that now God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son. It is the Son who is the ultimate, final Word. But He was also the eternal Word upon which all the rest rests. Here in John's Gospel, as we're going to see as we go through, that, that, that Jesus is speaking all the time. That the focus of, of this Gospel is dialogue and signs. It's not so much action like in Mark or a combination uh, that we find in Matthew and Luke. There's not as much activity, but we find a lot of these sort of dialogues, discussions, and disagreements taking place in which Jesus continually reveals his identity as well as the identity of the Father. He is continually, as it will say later on in chapter 1, exegeting or explaining the Father to the people. His role is to express God to the world. And so the Son of God is revealed as the eternally existing word that God has spoken. Secondly, let's go to the second phrase here. The word existed eternally in fellowship with God. John continues by repeating that was, that verb is going to be three times here. It's pointing again to another eternal reality. It is not pointing to a change that takes place. Okay, again, this is not then the word did something, but this is talking about the eternal state of the word. In this case, the word was with God. We see here that John is not teaching that the word supplants God. That the word is somehow in the place of God. That, that the, the Jews of his day should go back to their scroll that had Genesis 1 and somehow erase in the beginning God created and stick, stick word in the place of God. We're not saying that. But he is saying that the word was there, was eternally present with God himself. The Logos didn't suddenly come into God's presence, but had already been in God's presence. And we see that this teaches us, and we have to be very careful here. I have to be very careful. Not you, because I'm the one who's speaking. Okay, But you need to be careful in listening so you, so you don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Is that we see here initially that the Word is distinct from God. I'm going to clarify that later. This is in process. In a sense, what I'm saying is incomplete, so we've got to kind of hang on. But there's a distinction that is made between the Word and God at this point in what John is saying. There's another guy who was condemned years and years, centuries, millennium ago, whose name was Sibelius. And what Sibelius taught is called modalism. And the view of modalism was that there was one God but that he manifested himself in three different ways, but they were done consecutively, not at the same time. Okay, so first God was the Father, then God revealed himself as the Son, and then God revealed himself as the Holy Spirit, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. 
of these three things. And so uh, there is only one God, and he's only in one of these things at one particular point in time. John 1, 1 stands against that view, because here we have two together at the same time. There are many other verses that show this reality as well. This is only one, but we see that Sibelius's views are inconsistent. It's sort of the difference between snapshots and a movie, so to speak. He's looking at them as if they were snapshots. Okay, you know, right now, God is the Father. Oh, right now, God is the Son. And then, oh, later on, God will be the Spirit, as opposed to all of Scripture reveals all three together at the same time. Secondly, this word implies relationship between the word that was eternally alive and God who was eternally existent as well. Jesus in John 17 notes, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus, the Word, had glory prior to the creation of the world, according to Jesus. And so John's introduction here is just revealing some of that, what's going to become more fully known as we look go through the rest of this gospel. But he's saying that this Word was with God and was in relationship with God from the beginning, actually before the beginning. John 1, verse 8. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Back to that idea of of Jesus as the self-revelation of God, as the one who reveals the Father, if we can kind of slow down and parse this for a second, no one has ever seen God, meaning the Father, the only God who is at the Father's side. Okay, so now we're making a distinction here between the Father and the Son. The Son was at the Father's side, and He makes Him known to be... Oh, sorry, that's verse 18, not 8. So, my typo there. At the Father's side, some translations say at the Father's bosom, literally, as many commentators note, this is in his lap. Earlier this morning, Asher was feeling tired, and he rested in my lap. I don't do that with any, any old kid. The Father, God the Father does not have any old person in his lap his son is in his lap. This, that word is meant to build upon this one that we find here in one one. that idea of the incredible intimacy between the Father and the Word. It wasn't just with him in the same general location as him, but the Word was in the lap of the Father. The God who is love means that he has always experienced and manifested and shown love. And this means that there has always been someone to love. 
And that is one of the arguments for the Trinity is that they have experienced eternal fellowship with one another, that God has been loving Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit forever. Jonathan Edwards, in trying to understand the mystery of the Trinity, particularly with regard to the Son, views the Son as the Father's living thoughts of Himself. I just want to steal here. Gershner summarized, well, he didn't summarize this. He put this quote from Miscellany 94, Edwards writes, That image of God, which God infinitely loves, and has his chief delight in, is the perfect idea of God. It has always been said that God's infinite delight consists in reflecting on himself and viewing his own perfections, or, which is the same thing, in his own perfect idea of himself, so that tis acknowledged that God's infinite love is to and and his infant delight is in the perfect image of himself. But the scriptures tell us that the Son of God is that image. So what he's saying is, is that the word, you know, words start as thoughts, okay? Then they, they are expressed. And so the word is God's thoughts about himself in his own perfections. And instead of it just being his thoughts, they have a life unto themselves. That's a little hard for us to grasp now, isn't it? Because we've never experienced anything like that. We look in the mirror and we see ourselves with our imperfections, most likely. But we know it's not alive. We can reach out and our hand stops when we touch the glass of the mirror. But in this instance, when it comes to God, it's not something external to himself that projects this reflection. It is God himself. And as he thinks of himself and his perfections, those thoughts, that word, has life in and of itself. I can't, it's hard for us to grasp that. It really is. And perhaps, obviously, to the unbeliever, it sounds crazy. I understand that. It is hard sometimes to believe in a faith in which God reveals things that may exceed our capacity to grasp and understand. But we must submit ourselves to that which his, his word says, even if we understand it imperfectly. And so the word is the living revelation of God's perfection. As Scripture says in other places, it is his exact representation Colossians 1.15, he is the image or icon of the invisible God. He's the invisible God made visible for us to see. Hebrews 1, as we read earlier, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. To know what God looks like, you need only to look toward Jesus. And there you see the revelation, the explanation of who God is. And so John revealed the eternal Son as living in eternal fellowship with the Father. Thirdly, the Word is eternally God. 
as if all of the rest was not astounding enough that there was this thing called the Word, that this thing had always been, and this thing had always been with God. Now he goes one step further and says, indeed, the Word was God. When you look at the Greek, for those of you who read that, the word order is important because it provides. if you put something towards the front, it usually implies emphasis. And in this case, the word order was tells us the word was God. The emphasis is on God, not the word. There's something significant that needs to be known about the word, and that significant thing is it's God. He is God. The word didn't become God. As though one day it was man and another day it was God, but the word has eternally been God. This again would be contrary to the teaching of Arius and the Mormons. It's also contrary to what we see if we read the New World Translation. For the New World Translation says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. Lowercase g. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus had some element of divinity within him by nature of his creation, but he was not the same as the God. They deny the Trinity that is found in Scripture. They base their argument upon the fact that before God there is no article. The lack of an article before God does not mean it should be translated a God as though the word has some sort of divinity, but really isn't fully God. The lack of an article actually identifies God as the what's called the predicate nominative. Sorry for the grammar lesson, people. Okay? In other words, I can't move away again. I want to move away. You have two words that are in the nominative case. God and word. And so you need to know which one of those two in the nominative case functions as the Subject, and which one is the predicate nominative, that to which the subject refers, which more fully explains the subject. So what's the subject? The word or God. And so the article in in Greek is often used in that kind of instance to indicate which one is the subject. Otherwise, we would go, which is it? Is it the God was the word, or God was the word, or are we to mean God, sorry, the word is God? The article just indicates that the word is the subject and God is the predicate nominative. You don't have to build a whole theology that denies the Trinity on the basis of the fact that there's not an article there. That shows that one does not understand how the Greek language functions. And so we see from this that the word is fully God, even though he is not the totality of God. Did you catch that distinction? In other words, while the Word Himself is fully and completely and wholly God, God is not, well, the Word is not the totality of who God is. Because there's also a Father, there's also a Spirit. Okay? And so John is expressing something that is quite profound here. And it's something that, if misunderstood, does violence to the Scriptures. 
We see here the unity of the two persons in a sense. The unity of God is very important. It was part of the the Shema, the creed of Israel. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. So Jesus would say that that second part is the greatest commandment when he was asked. But there is that that statement of uh, confession of faith. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. How do we deal with that? Are we to believe sort of in diatheism, that there are two gods running about, one God and one the Word, or do we understand them as one God, two persons who are united with one another? In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul applies, so to speak, what we see in Deuteronomy 6. For there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and through whom we exist. And so Paul is taking the Shema, and it's trying to recognize, trying to instruct the Corinthians that this one God is, has revealed himself in these two persons, though he would say later on in the Spirit. Later in John's Gospel, we're going to see that the Spirit is also God, particularly when we get to the high priestly prayer. And so we're going to find that there is one God who exists in three persons simultaneously, not consecutively. But John wants us to be very clear about the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son, that He is fully God. In John 10, Jesus will say, The Father and I are one. Which meant that the Pharisees began to pick up stones, accusing Him of blasphemy. They understood exactly what He meant. They just didn't believe it. Gregory of Danzianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers, on the basis of this says that I cannot think of the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three. Nor can I discern the three without being straightway carried back to the one. And so for Gregory, talking about the one God always led him to think of the three persons. But to think of the three persons always led him back to the oneness of God. He didn't try to separate them, but he thought of them as one, together. Yet three. He was living within that tension. And the danger is to somehow try to break that tension and to go off into tritheism or denial of the Trinity. The rest of this gospel makes no sense apart from these words in verse 1. Because this gospel is about the God who reveals himself to the world that he has made. 
Not only that, this gospel is about the God who came to save sinners. And so the, the statements that Jesus makes about himself make no sense or are the delusions of a madman if what we find in one one is not true. The miracles that Jesus does either make no sense, they're impossible, or they are a deception unless we believe what we read here in John 1.1. The primary goal of this gospel is found at the end of the gospel where John says that all of these things were written so that you might believe and in believing have eternal life. And so the very first thing that John wants us to believe is that Jesus, as the Word, is fully God. And if we can't believe that, we can't believe anything else that's in here. It may sound nice, but it is of no good to us. Because His saving mission And his revelation of who God is, is directly tied to the fact that he is God. So we see the Trinity is under attack from all sides, atheists, Jews, Muslims, and a number of cults that consider themselves Christians. John begins his gospel with this astounding reality that shapes all that he writes about Jesus' earthly ministry. That Jesus came to reveal the Father to the world. The world that He had made but had turned away from Him. That Jesus was sent by the Father to reclaim that world of sinners. John has written all these things so that we may believe, and by believing, as I said, have eternal life. And so the very first thing we must ask ourselves, do we believe that Jesus is fully God? or not. Let's pray. Father, you have given us this gospel that John has written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, shaped not just in its general theme, but by the very words he uses word by word to convey particular truths so that we might have a living faith in the real Christ and not one of our own imaginations. So, Father, I ask that we would humble ourselves before the Scriptures as we look not just at this passage but all that follow, that we would submit ourselves to what you say about Jesus through your Spirit found in this Gospel account. Father, I pray this so that we might indeed have life. And so I thank you that you have given this gospel account to us primarily that we might grow in gospel knowledge. That we might know more about the God we believe in. That we might entrust ourselves more fully to that God as we discover more of the greatness that is found in Jesus. And so, Father, instruct us. Deepen our faith. Deepen our capacity to speak to those who don't know Him. So that in our gospel practice, we're able to 
proclaim the knowledge more fully and completely about the one in whom we believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.